Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. 2, 6-19 After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime uh, of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsake the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook forsook him and and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refuse to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Thanks, Tim. And let me pray one more time. Father, thank you for the book of Judges. Thank you for a new series. We pray you'd speak to us through this book, that it would be living, it would be active, that it would point us to where we need to change, and it would point us to Jesus, the one who changes us. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Show of hands, how many have seen the film Calvary? Okay, and more of you need to go and see this film. It's a great film. It, challenge, it, it, it details the life of a parish priest called J, Father James Flavel in, uh, in, uh, in Sligo. And he's dealing with the local parish and all the challenges that come. And there's a lot of messed up people. The film starts, the opening words are Father James hearing a confession of a boy on the other side of the booth who says to him, I'm going to kill you this time tomorrow. And he talks about how he had suffered sexual abuse at the hands of the church. And because Father James was innocent, he was going to kill him. Then there's another couple who are flagrantly having an affair in the parish that everyone knows about. His daughter, his own daughter, he came to the priesthood late, uh, wants to commit suicide and he has to navigate that. His fellow priest is incredibly naive, disconnected and cowardly. There's a rich man who spends all of his life drinking to numb the pain of the meaningless he feels despite being stinking rich. One of the characters loses her husband in a car crash, and there's a young man struggling with pornography and identity, and a number of other complicated characters. It's one man coming to terms with how grim and dark the world can be. Uh, It's full of depravity, deceitfulness, and the hardness of the human heart in many guises, including Father James, who's one of the good guys. But even the good guys have a darker side. 
as you find out in the film, when he's pushed to the limits. And then the film ends with a shocking scene, which I won't tell you, to, you know, spoiler alert, I've told you to go and see it, I won't tell you. And then the cinema goes black. And there were no credits for about 30 seconds, and there's no music, and it's black. And that's the end. And Leanne and I sat there at the end of this amazingly moving and very interesting portrayal of modern islands, and there's blackness and silence at the end. It's provocative, it's shocking, it's disturbing. There isn't a happy ending. It's the book of Judges. It's not a book for the faint-hearted. If it was made into a film, it'd be an 18, it'd probably be X-rated. It's full of blood and violence, rape and murder, betrayal. And it ends with a very, very, the last line is very unhappy. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It's a book about flawed people and flawed leaders and things go from bad to worse in a deepening vortex of ugliness. And whilst there are a few glimmers of hope, even the good guys are not very good. And then the screen goes black. And it says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did whatever they wanted. So you might well ask the question, what's this book doing in the Bible? And why are we going to spend 10 weeks looking at blood and violence and the darkness of the human heart. Here's why. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. When you really see how dark the world is and your heart and the ugliness of sin, you suddenly see how bright and glorious and powerful is the grace of God. The book of Judges is, an is a portrayal of the increase of sin. And in, but in all the mess, and we've just been singing it, in all the goodness and the badness, everything that's going on, God is still at work. And he has still grace. And he is still forgiving and working and changing us. So we've entitled this series, and there's a blog post with more details, called The Flawed and the Flawless. Humans in this book are shown to be radically flawed. And there's one hero in the book, and it's God. And he's the flawless one, and everyone else is, flawless, is flawed. And the passage you've just had read, Judges 2, 6 to 19, is a summary of the whole book. It kind of tells you this is what's going to happen. All these different judges that are going to come, Gideon, Samson, you've heard Jephthah, you've heard of some of them, are going to tell the same story in a different way. They're going to tell the story of a faithful God. If, verses 6 to 9, you can look down. It's the story of the Bible so far that after the human race fell into sin, and death came into the world. God said, I'm going to start again. And he calls Abraham in Genesis 12. And he says, I'm going to bless all nations through you. 400 years later, he brings the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, out of slavery in Egypt and makes them into a holy nation, giving them the law, saying, now be like me and represent me to the nations and, I'll put, and I'm going to put you in the promised land. And that's the book before the book of Judges, the book of Joshua. God's people enter the promised land and it's all about them taking up their inheritance and entering and the land being divided up. And then it says, verse 6, look down. After Joshua dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. The first thing we learn from today's passage is about the faithfulness of God to bring his people out the parting of the Red Sea, the defeating of enemies, 
released from slavery, miraculous water and food in the desert. He guided the people by night with a pillar of fire and by day a pillar of cloud. The Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, a tent, a tabernacle where he could dwell amongst them and his presence. Verses 6 is a summary verse saying this generation's finished and it tells us how faithful God has been for the last four or five hundred years from, and before, going back to Moses and Abraham. The previous generation had seen the great things of the Lord and were now in the promised land. God was their deliverer, provider, companion, and guide. But the next thing we learn in the passage is about a faithless people, verses 10 to 13. It talks about how the people just left God quite quickly. They served other gods. They got involved in the practices of the nations around them. Despite all God's faithfulness, the people were faithless. A whole generation grows up. They do evil, and they arouse the Lord's anger. And it says there in verse 13, they forsook him and served Baal and Ashtoreth. And so we see in the book now, verses 14 to 16, uh, 18, a cycle. As I said, this is a summary of the rest of the book. This is how this generation is going to act. They're going to sin and turn away, primarily shown through idolatry. Then they're going to be oppressed as God judges them and hands them over to the nations around them. Instead of being a light to the nations, they're going to be enslaved to the nations. Then they're going to repent in their misery and go, no, God, we should never have left you. God is going to be merciful. He's going to raise up a deliverer, a leader, a judge. That's what the judges are. Who's going to bring them out and defeat the enemies and bring them to a time of peace and prosperity. But then in the peace and prosperity, and don't you know this in your own life? Compromise, laziness, sin starts to creep in because life's okay. They forget God. Didn't you forget God when life's good? And then the cycle goes, and it gets worse and worse. So look at verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshipping them, they refused to give up evil practices and stubborn ways. So the people became even, even more corrupt generation after generation as one judge died. I've mentioned it already. What's at the heart of all this problem, all the problem? Why does the cycle go like this in the book of Judges? Idolatry. Did you spot it there repeatedly as Tim read the passage? They followed and worshipped the gods around them, the gods of the Canaanites. God had clearly said in the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua, you must drive out the nations so they don't become a snare to you. You don't worship their gods. You don't follow their practices, including things like child, child sacrifice. What happens in chapter 1 of Judges? We haven't had time to read it. Seven times the writer with a preacher's punch says they did not drive out those living in the land. They didn't obey God's word to drive out those that were there. Instead of obeying God, they did things their own way. They compromised. They did what was convenient. They made calculations. Yeah, I know God said this, but this would probably make more sense to me. And so the nations became a snare. And again, don't we do the same? Doesn't God say to us, do this? And we go, no, no, I know I should, but wait a minute, in my calculations, God, it'd probably be a bit better if we did this. Or don't we go, no, well, it's just a bit more, and that, what you've asked there, God, is actually quite hard. Can I, I just do what's convenient? And so we compromise. It's half-hearted discipleship. We haven't, and the people of Israel didn't actually reject God, but they didn't also fully accept him. They got one foot in with God and one foot in with whatever else they want. Convenience, calculation, 
compromise is the order of the day in the book of Judges. Half-hearted discipleship. But one person put it, this halfway discipleship is no discipleship at all. It is imp- it's an impos- impossible, unstable compound. God wants not just part of our lives, but all of our lives. And so Israel became a nation living among idols, the gods of the Canaanites. And these idols are like buried mines lying dormant, ready to explode into the spiritual lives of the people. And instead of enjoying, this is the key, instead of enjoying the freedom and the abundance of the promised land, as God had said, they didn't flourish, they suffered and were enslaved by the nations. They went back to Egypt, but by their own choice. And so it's the same with us today. We live in a world full of idols. And these idols can explode into our lives, causing us to live half-hearted lives of convenience and compromise. We don't flourish. We don't know the freedom. We don't know the abundance of the promised land, which is a relationship with God through Christ. We don't know that. We haven't rejected God, but nor is he everything to us. And so Judges 2 acts as a warning. And I'm going to make three points about it. I want to use it to think through how do we discern the prevalence of idols in our lives and our culture? How can we be aware of the power of idols to enslave us? And then how can we savor the Lord over all idols? So we do know freedom. We do know abundance. We don't forfeit what Israel forfeited. So let's look at first the prevalence of of idols. For, 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 the, for, for the Israelites and judges, the Canaanites were the problem. And they worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth. Baal was the god of storm and fertility. And for the Canaanites, fertility was the name of the game. Fertility of crops and livestock and family. Baal, nature god that he was, naturally had a female consort, Ashtoreth. And so the Canaanites, the Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution as part of their worship. A Canaanite man, for instance, would go to a Baal shrine and have intercourse with one of the the sacred prostitutes serving there. The man would fulfill fulfill the role of Baal and the woman the role of Ashtoreth. The idea was that the copulating couple in their worship would encourage the divine couple in the sky, Mr. and Mrs. Baal, to do the thing they wanted, to give rain and grain and wine and oil and family. So it's as if you could assist the divine orgasm in the sky of Baal and Ashtoreth. That was the idea. Now, we might listen to that and go, wow, that is weird and primitive, and it is. But we'd be stupid to go, but we, oh, that means we don't have idols in our lives like they did. You see, what were the Canaanites doing? They were trusting in something, Baal and Ashtoreth, to bring them meaning, future, happiness, security, hope. And so they started to serve that thing as a way of securing that happiness. And that's what we do with idols. We start to serve things to say, if I just have this, I'll be happy. If I just do this, I'll be secure. I feel good about myself. I won't be insignificant. Now, here's the thing to think, remember about idols. We typically think of them as bad things. But they're nearly never bad things. They're always good things. And that's why we don't discern them. And it's not a surprise because we expect good things to satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. The better they are, the more good it is, the more likely it might be to satisfy our needs and hopes. So we must discern that the prevalence of idols because we have to discern that the very best things in our lives are the most likely candidates for being our counterfeit gods. 
the very best things in our lives are the likeliest candidates to be the idols that might explode and cause us misery. For me, it's been academia, sport, work, and Christian ministry. All great things. But they've become too important, and I'll share a bit more, and, and, and the desire for achievement and success through these things. And instead of these things being something I can thank God for, these things have started to control me. So an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that if you lose it, you think, it's hardly worth me being alive. If I don't have this, it's not even worth me living because it is your life. It can be family and children, career and making money, achievement and critical acclaim, saving face and social standing. It can be romantic relationships, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances. It can be your beauty or your brains. It can be great political or social causes that are good things. It can be your morality and your virtues. It can be your success in Christian ministry. It can be anything. Remember, the most likely candidate for your idols are the best things in your lives. And remember, Israel didn't reject God outright. They just served him amongst other gods, alongside the true God. It was pick and mix. It was half in. It was compromise. The true God was one of many gods they followed and worshipped. And you see, whenever someone says to me, Oh, no, no, I would, I would worship God if he did this. No, no, God is a means to the, the real God in your life, which is whatever you're going to fill the next sentence with. That's the thing that you really find your meaning from. See, so I'd worship God if he did this. Well, you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping that, and God is just a means to that. Do you see? Or when anyone, you know, says something like, um, yeah, I follow God and God needs to do X, Y, and Z to prove himself to me. Well, no, the next Y and Z is your God and God is just a way of finding. So, you see, that's what, the Canaan, that's what they were doing. Yeah, we know God's out there, but he's going to help me get what I want rather than be God to me and we worship him alone. So how would you discern the prevalence of idols in your life? Remember the good things, not the bad things. Well, it says in the scriptures that we love, trust, and obey God, and therefore counterfeit gods. And we're going to see this from the passage. So how would you locate them if they are things you love, trust, and obey? First of all, you locate them in your daydreams because you love a false lover. And this lover's got your imagination. And therefore, when no one else is watching, and when you're bored at work, or when you can't sleep at night, your mind wanders to somewhere, and you found him. That's your God. You're starting to fantasize. That's the thing you love the most. And verse 17 says, they prostituted themselves. It's a language of love or betrayal of love. So what do you daydream about? Secondly, our nightmares. We trust a false savior. Verse 12 talks about following and worshiping, which is a language of trust. So idols give us a sense of peace and security and being in control. And so we can locate the idols by what we fear because what might I lose? And if I lost it, I don't know if I could carry on. My life wouldn't be worth living. It's a savior to me. It gives me control and peace. What do you have nightmares about? When does fear rise up in your heart and your, and your mind? And you, <gasps> What is it? Not all fear is bad, but if there's a recurring fear... And thirdly, you can locate your idols in your unyielding emotions. Verse 19 says they served other gods. That's the language of obedience, of another Lord that you serve. 
Because whatever we love and whatever we trust, we naturally serve. So you can look at your emotions. Because what makes you uncontrollably angry? Not righteously angry, uncontrollably. What makes you uncontrollably anxious? Not normal anxiety, but like dominating anxiety. What, what, what makes you despondent and jealous beyond belief? What racks you with guilt? That's the Lord you serve. I have a good friend who talks about his idol like this, and he describes it like this. He says, the highs are too high and the lows are too low. He's aware of his idol, that it has a control on him, and that means his emotions are too dictated, high or low, by whether he pleases, succeeds his idol, or fails, disappoints his idol. What's it for you? When are your emotions so like all over the place, and you're like, one minute you're like this, and then what is it that's controlling that extreme emotional support uh, response? You see, as with Israel, the thing we think will bring us satisfaction of a lover the security of a saviour and the significance of serving a Lord actually breaks our hearts. It doesn't fill our hearts. The cycle of the book of Judges works itself out in our lives. And instead of finding fulfilment in this idol, we're crushed and enslaved. So you've got to discern. You've got to do a bit of self-analysis. You've got to get with friends and your life group and your city group and go, yeah, what is it in your life? Because once you've discerned the the prevalence of idols and stopped ignoring them, remember they're the good things, you then have to be aware of the power of them to enslave you. As I said, verse 17, just look at it, it's an amazing phrase, yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. You see, that tells us that sin is not so much about breaking God's laws but about breaking God's heart. Instead of loving God, you've thrown yourself into the arms of another lover. And when you prostitute, you know, to use the word prostitute tells us that when we serve an idol, we come into an intense relationship with us where it uses us but does not care for us. We become completely vulnerable with it, but all that does is open us up to extreme hurt because it has no commitment to us, no compassion, no love. The idol always uses, destroys enslaves you. So this is how idolatry works in the Bible. I've shared this many times and it's important you all have this framework if you want to understand spiritual change in your own life. An idol is a good thing. Friends, family, children, success and career that becomes an ultimate thing. You think I have to have this or else I have no meaning. Becomes a ruling thing. The thing that you thought you had to have to, to give you meaning now is something you serve and it's in charge of you controlling emotions and nightmares and fears and joys. And then it becomes a destructive thing. It's like spiritual addiction to the wrong thing. And an addict to chemicals always ends up isolated and desensitized. You need more and more of the chemical to get the same response. And eventually that isolates you from relationships around you and desensitizes you from reality. It's the same. It will destroy you in some way. It will isolate you in some way. It will desensitize you in some way. An idol can neither satisfy you when you get it, and it will never forgive you. It will always crush you when you fail it. And it will destroy you. Idols have power over their lives. We thought they served us, but really we served them. They're like the Canaanite gods. They have no compassion. They have no kindness. They have no feeling. They have no loyalty. They use you and leave you. They don't bless you. They don't forgive you. They just take, and it leads to misery, like in the book of Judges. 
So discern the prevalence of them. Don't be naive. Don't be blasé like Israel was. Do what God says. Drive them out. Secondly, beware the power. Realize how they can destroy your life subtly. The good things, not the bad things. And then thirdly, well, how do we escape the slavery? We savor the Lord over all idols. Do you see verse 10? It's an interesting verse. Look down there. After the whole, is, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up, listen, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Who knew neither. Do you think the next generation had forgotten about the Red Sea, the escape from Egypt, the pillar of fire and cloud, the law at Sinai, the presence of God in the tabernacle, the provision of food and water in the desert? Do you think they literally didn't know that stuff? Of course they did. It's their history. Their forefathers had constantly told it them. Their scriptures were telling them. They weren't ignorant. When it says did not know, it wasn't because they were ignorant. It's they didn't find those things precious. Those things didn't define their meaning and joy in life anymore. Intellectually, they knew those things. But at a heart level, emotionally, it didn't captivate them. They didn't savor them. They didn't treasure them. When two lovers know each other, that is far more than intellectual understanding. That's a deep, personal understanding of sharing and delighting in one another, rejoicing in one another. Israel no longer rejoiced about these things. They were just a distant memory. They didn't, these things didn't, this amazing truth of their history and salvation didn't, didn't give them any joy, any, any, any satisfaction. But then verse 18 is a key verse. When the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of the enemy as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning. Or the Lord had compassion because of their groaning. Here is the Lord over all idols. And instead of enslaving us and crushing us when we fail him, he heals us and forgives us. You know, there's a whole book in the Bible devoted to this idea that God is our lover and we've committed spiritual prostitution and thrown ourselves into the arms of other lovers. And that's the book of Hosea. Read it, especially chapters 1 to 3. Breathtaking book to help us understand how our sin is. Judges 2 talks about Israel forgetting God and God punishing them, bringing them to their knees in judgment. And so does Hosea 2. It says this, I'll punish her for the days she burned incense to the bowels. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after other lovers. But she forgot me. God's saying, Israel forgot me. This is the situation of judges. We go after false gods. And God says, I'm going to come and judge. Like he does in Judges. But then in verse 14 of Hosea 2, it says this. Therefore I am going to allure her. Woo. God is going to woo. He's going to allure. He's going to draw us in like a lover. I will lead her where? To the place where we had our first love, Mount Sinai, the wilderness. Let me go back. I'm going to, God says, I'm going to take Israel and I'm going to speak so, to, I'm going to lure her back to where we first had our first encounter of love. And I'm going to speak tenderly to her in that day, in that day declares the Lord. You will call me you will not call me my husband. Uh, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. And that's a play on words because Baal means master. So God is saying, oh, when I come back for you, I'm not going to come. You're not going to be my subjects. You're going to be my lover. 
my husband, my, my bride, I'll be your husband. So suddenly, in verse 13 of Hosea, we have judgment like we have in, 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 in uh, Judges 2. But then we also have, like in Judges 2, like compassion and relenting. We have not, not punishing, not harsh words, but wooing and alluring back in the wilderness where that first love can be rekindled. Speaking tenderly as lovers. God comes to win us back. Now, you may be thinking, well, Steve, which is it? Which is it? Is it verse 13 or verse 14 of Hosea? Is it the bit where God says, I'm going to judge in Judges 2, or is it the bit where he says he's going to have compassion? Which is it? Is it God's justice because we provoke his anger, or is it his compassion and his wooing and his love and he speaks tenderly? Which is it? Do you know the tension is never resolved in the book of Judges? And it's actually the tension that drives the whole of the Old Testament narrative. Will God's justice override his love, or will his love override his justice? The tension is never resolved until the true bridegroom comes from heaven. But he doesn't compromise his justice. But instead of bringing justice to our lives and says, you've turned from me, you've thrown yourself into false lovers, he says, I'll bear eternal justice on myself so I can woo you, so I can speak tenderly, so I can draw you back. How do you break the power of idols in your life? Not through discipline. That will lead to another idol. Not through positive thinking. That will lead to another idol. After you've discerned your idols and you're aware of their power and you're seeing how they're destroying your lives, you hear Jesus wooing you. Come to me and I will give you water to drink that will never run out. Come over to me. The thing you're looking for in that idol will always be like salt water. You'll need to drink more and more of it and it will slowly kill you. Come to me for living water. Remember the woman at the well? Five husbands and the man she's living with is not her husband. She'd thrown herself into lots of false lovers. And Jesus says, hey, let me show you how I can satisfy you. And then you start to rejoice. Not intellectually, but you t- that's why we're going to have communion. We taste, we take in, we eat, we participate. We go, this isn't just intellectual. I'm knowing God in a different way here. At a heart level. It's easy to know God intellectually. We were discussing it multiple times and the person I was engaging with in my, connect, in my Renew meeting and the person was so vulnerable. You know, I know God, I know it here, but do I know it here? And God says, let me woo you. I can't compromise my justice, but I'll take that justice and I'll buy you out of slavery, not of Egypt, but of your idols. I always use this illustration because I have no better one. How do you, a kid has a forbidden object in their hand, a knife, And a kid wants that forbidden object because they know they can't have it. Sort of how sin works in our lives, isn't it? When you know you can't have it, you want it. And a parent says to the kid, give me that knife. Knowing that the knife could kill him. It's not like a nasty thing. The parent is trying to care for the kid. But as soon as the parent says, give me that knife, the kid goes and closes their hand on it and maybe kills them or hurts themselves. So if you apply law to someone's idol, you just go tighter. No, don't tell me what to do. If you show the kid a large chocolate cake and go, I need the knife to cut it, the kid goes, because they've been captured by something greater. How do you break the power of idols in your lives? Not through discipline, not through hard work, not through law, not through going, God's going to judge me, by going, God was judged so he can woo me and he can captivate me. 
and I can rejoice in him like Israel should have been rejoicing all the time, every Sabbath, every Saturday, and then every Passover about the great story they'd had. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value, to reflect on its beauty and its importance until your heart rests and it tastes the sweetness of it. Honey is sweet. We all know that intellectually. Taste it, though. You can't, you, you can't intellectually explain that taste. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and it relaxes its grip on anything else it feels it needs. The only way to drive out idols in your life is to be enamored and captivated by the great lover who both satisfies you when you get him and forgives you when you fail him. As we come to the end of our month of Renew, the month of May, seeking God together for our lives, the church and the city, let's consider where is our half-hearted discipleship? Where have we made calculations? God says this, but I'm going to think this. Where is it more convenient? God says this, but no, it's more convenient. Where's that compromise? Let's root out and replace the idols, repent of them, and then save a God who forgives us and draws us to a place to say, can we rekindle our first love, to fill us, to satisfy us, to complete us? A few weeks ago, I was having a one-to-one with a guy in this church, and we are talking about an area of sin and struggle in his life, and uh, one particular area where he'd looked for satisfaction and significance uh, in something else other than God. And we were discussing it, and uh, he's been very self-reflective. And at one point, we realized the thing he was looking for that wasn't in God, he already had in Christ, but he wasn't appreciating it. And if he had been appreciating it, he wouldn't have gone looking for it elsewhere. How do you grow as a Christian? How do you see transformation in your life? What is it that I'm looking for in something else that I actually already have, but I'm not rejoicing in it? It's not that I don't have significance. It's not that I don't have power. It's not that I don't have... I have it. I just... It's it's not sweet to me in Jesus, and I'm looking for it elsewhere. Where do you need to be more discerning? of the good thing in your life that's become an ultimate thing. Where do you need to be more aware of the destruction that this thing is bringing into your life? How it controls you, dictates emotions, causes your mind to drift to all the time, causes you nightmares and fears as you think about losing it. Be aware of its power, not to be full of guilt, but to see it for what it is. It's not a God that's going to satisfy you. And then after discerning and being aware, just think for a moment, savor Jesus, the true lover, and he forgives you first and foremost. That's what this communion's about. He paid the price for you. You don't, like, you don't live under condemnation. You don't need to fear. But you can also taste and enjoy him. And pray that you would. And I ask Holy Spirit that as we come forward for the bread and wine, Jesus would be so real to us, we'd loosen our grip on things that we think are so important. So Jesus, please come minister to us as we take the bread and wine, as we sing, as we respond. And may we go into this week with our eyes open and our hearts open and our ears open to your spirit speaking, um, full of repentance and humility to spot the areas where we need to turn from, but then full of joy and eagerness as we run to you, our true lover. In your name, amen.